Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Well, hello and welcome to show number 433 from Engage for Success Radio. Today we're going to be talking about how do we navigate this work, the, the epidemic of uh, workplace mental unhealth and uh, I'll be introducing our guest in a moment who's going to be helping us explore that topic Um, but by way of an introduction for any new listeners out there Engage for Success uh, is a not-for-profit movement and we're the UK's leading voice on the topic of employee engagement we're raising awareness and running events through our area networks around the country and our topic and sector specific thought and action groups we're developing research publishing case studies and shining a light on great practice. Do visit us at engageforsuccess.org to learn more, um, and where you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'm Jo Moffat. I'm one of the regular hosts of Engage for Success Radio, um, and I'm also Managing Director and Founder of Woodread. Woodread is a specialist creative agency where we use the tools, the techniques, and the insights-led approach of the advertising and marketing world to help our clients create great places to work high-performing cultures of engaged employees. Um, So as I say, today's show, number 433, um, is how do we navigate this workplace mental unhealth epidemic? And to help us um, explore that topic, I'm very pleased to welcome back to Radio um, Engage for Success Radio, Maria Pavois, who is founder of uh, CARI, which is a workplace wellbeing and performance platform, as well as being a, a new Noichem, uh, I should have checked how to pronounce that, shouldn't I? Noichem coaching model as well. So, have I introduced you correctly, Maria? That's not bad, Joe. It's not bad. It's Newchem, actually. Newchem. Oh, it's Newchem. Newchem. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, I was trying to trying to introduce a bit of European pronunciation into that. Yeah, I think, it's, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's, it's Newchem because it's short for neurochemical brain and chemistry. That's why it's uh, Newchem. Uh, okay okay got you that makes sense all right well look that's good um good to get that straight so that's before we get into the meat of things just give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself your professional background if you would maria i'm delighted to yes um well i am as you know i'm a registered psychologist um but that all goes back to when i did my degree in psychology and biology so my interest has always been not just in the psychological side of things, but the biological side. So that naturally led me to go down the, the road of neuroscience and understanding brains. So that's kind of been the background to really everything I've been doing since the 1980s onwards. And, and my interest fundamentally in, in well-being in the workplace, uh, because without workplace well-being, you don't get engagement, you don't get performance and you don't get the productivity and everything and all the good stuff that we that we um, we all love and and I feel that you know we do so much of our spend so much of our time at work um, we should it should be fun it should be a great place to be it should be in its own right it should be feeding our souls so so all of my work has been through working in organisations I've also worked in the NHS um, mm-hmm. and um, it's primarily been in in psychology. Um, but also in technology, I was a, um, had a, a tech business from the 1990s, and I won awards for developing well-being technology in 1996, 1997 from the European British government. That, that, so, 
that that was a little ahead of your time of the of the of the oh. sort of um, zeitgeist I would have said, wasn't it, Maria? Oh, just a little tiny bit, absolutely, <laughs> well and truly, well and truly. So, I mean, well-being. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, well-being has been absolutely fundamental to me and my work for my entire career. So yeah, yeah. and it's great to see so many people now getting involved and, and these young companies developing and, and bringing out lots of new wonderful uh, resources and technology and it's great to see all of that because it's it's about time I had a few more friends in this space because I was very lonely for a long time. <laughs> Excellent well it's it's good good to know that we've got someone with us who, who could really talk about it. I was at the um, Health and Wellbeing at Work event at the NEC last weekend, um, last, weekend uh, last week I mean um, and there was uh, it was a, a fabulous turnout actually I mean as well as all the sort of exhibitors um, and the various speaking streams and conference streams and so on there were about 1800 delegates I think there um, so it was, a, you know, it was a it was a really good turnout actually and and of course you know we all we can all look back on the last two years and say that you know well-being has and it was already quite some way up the organizational agenda before COVID hit but you know, it's really, really, uh, and rightly so, um, come to the fore, hasn't it, in the last couple of years. So what what does that present from your point of view? What what do you think the biggest challenges to organisations are in terms of well-being at work at the moment? I mean, is it is it leftovers of COVID or dealing, I mean, I know we're not past it yet by any means, but, you know, is it, are we all still guided by the COVID is the COVID tail wagging the well-being dog, or are we able to be thinking a bit more strategically, do you think? Oh, I would love to be able to say no. Um, no, no, we're all thinking very strategically. I think before COVID, it was, it was interesting. Before COVID, it was, uh, because the piece of technology that I've developed, which, um, which is called Carry, as you said, um, with that piece of technology, we have been able to gather a huge amount of data. And we were mm-hmm. looking at well-being before COVID, and we also had another look at well-being um, right in the middle of COVID, um, and we were able to compare one year with another, which was really interesting because the year before COVID, we had about um, a quarter of people were, um, uh, hang on, no, get it right, before COVID, about one third of people coming to work were healthy, and the mm-hmm. other two thirds were not. And we thought, oh, isn't that awful? And when it, when it got to COVID, we only had about a quarter of people who were actually coming to work, whatever that means, um, who were actually healthy, and three quarters of people who weren't. So, so COVID has had an impact on people's mental health, and this is mental health specifically. But, but I think before then, um, there's been a lot of interest in well-being. People, it's, you know, subject of, of conversation, but I think the problem has been in a lot of organisations that it's an add-on or a nice mm-hmm. to have, and it, mm-hmm. and it has to be looked at as something that is fundamentally important to your ability to perform as an organisation. Mm. So, and I've, I work a lot in the public sector as well, and, and I know that there's a huge amount of will to do something, but it's but it's actually coming up against the arguments, you know, but how do I present the argument that this is a good idea? Uh, yeah. And I think for a lot of organisations, there is without doubt a huge amount of great stuff that is going on. People are producing fantastic resources and people are very dedicated to getting those resources out there. I think the biggest problem we've got is actually getting people engaged 
in the resources. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and there's a really good reason for that, and that's because the worse your level of well-being, the less capable you are of engaging in anything. In anything, because that and that comes right back to your neuroscience roots, yeah. doesn't it? Really, in that we're, if we are, you know, we're kind of going to what into the away place and and, and unable to sort of focus or learn, take new ideas on board or anything. Um, so, you know, there was a, a really interesting point came up at the last week's Health and Wellbeing at Work event. We there was a, a presentation that I attended by, uh, or it was a couple of NHS uh, presentations back to back, and one of them was particularly talking about the, the the productivity impact of people dragging themselves to work when they shouldn't for whatever reason, and they they're calling it presenteeism, which of course is a term we all we all know and and but tend to think of presenteeism as people sort of making sure that they're they're seen at work you know that sort of hanging the jacket on the back of the desk uh, back of the chair and so on so your boss thinks you're still there that kind of thing um but this was more about presenteeism in the sense of people really should not be at work because their mental health for example or their physical health or whatever means that they actually would be should not be at work because they are not able to function effectively and the impact on the on they would they actually were demonstrating the link between that and productivity and they were actually um showing that there was more and this comes back to your evidence point that's why well, i think it's fascinating that there was a greater hit on productivity in terms of days productivity lost as a result of people being at work when they really aren't able to function effectively compared to people actually just not being there through sickness absence so it's actually more damaging. To, Absolutely. To, isn't that fascinating? The, 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 sorry. So I was going to say the amount of money it's costing um, is, is actually fundamentally and significantly more the cost to, of presenteeism than both attrition and sickness absence added together. It's actually more than that. But yeah, what you're, what you're saying is really interesting because, because this concept of presenteeism, what we've been looking at over the last 20 years is mm. and we first coined the phrase um, brave face syndrome and, and now we're calling it presenteeism oh. everyone else's but when we oh, right. when, okay we called it brave face syndrome because we saw it in the data so carrie is very um our our um uh, ai tech is able to to analyze nuanced answers and so we can actually see when people are putting the brave face um mm. from looking at that what we've been able to determine is that there are there are three different levels of presenteeism, um, and they, each of them require a very different approach. So my, the, the, the way that I kind of put it to people is, say, is to say, you know, when, when you've got this website full of fantastic wellbeing resources, it's a great thing that you've got it, but you've got to be really careful because the lower down in wellbeing people are, the less able they are to be able to take on board and use these things. And I, I liken it to... Mm throwing a book on how to swim to someone who is drowning. You know, it's not... <laughs> oh, yeah. You've got to get the appropriate measure. So, yeah. so I, often, I often talk about the, the river of life because, um, because we see Carrie as the, as the um, uh, search and rescue of well-being. So we use right. sort, of, sort of water watery metaphors. But actually, if you imagine coming up to a, to a, a um, challenge in life and it's like coming up to a river... And you get to the bridge and you can cross on the bridge. And when you're healthy, it's crossing on the bridge. You can see the challenge and you can overcome the challenge and it's easy. But if you slip off that bridge and you're up to your knees in water, 
And people often can relate to this, this idea of life feels like you're wading through water, work feels like you're wading through water. Mm. And that's the first level, if you like, of presenteeism. But when you're at that level, from a brain science point of view, you're going into hyperarousal. But the best thing for you is to be among other people and to be able to talk to them and to be able to be part of something where you can all work together and, and talk about your issues. But once you start getting washed downstream and you're trying to keep your head above water, you really don't care about anyone else, to be perfectly honest. You're just focusing on yourself. And at that point, you really could do with somebody like coaching you into getting back into the shallows so that you can get out of the shallows. Um, and, and if you go further downstream, then you can end up going under and you literally need someone to pull you out. And if you imagine that kind of, that kind of metaphor in a working situation, it kind of works quite well. You think, oh, some people literally need you to go up to them and say, do you need some support? That's not, not in those words, but you, know, you need some support and you're worthy of support. Mm. Mm. You don't have support. You are worthy just like everyone else. And I think that's, that's an important message, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fascinating. I love, I love that analogy. I think that's a, it's a, it's a perfect analogy. And I, I have to say, I much prefer your brave face syndrome to the word presenteeism because for me, brave face syndrome explains it far better. I think it, it's a much easier thing. You know, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's clearer than presenteeism, which to me, as I say, feels much more like the, I'm just. I'm going to hang around for a bit, you know, I'll pretend that I'm working a 10 hour day when actually I could have got my work done in eight. That's not the same thing at all. And um, I much rather your, I much prefer your brave face syndrome. And what was quite interesting, of course, if you think about the NHS stories that I I heard last week that prompted me to say this, um, you've got a far, because you're in a vocation, largely in a vocational work, people who are working because of a vocation or much more driven sense Mm. of being, what they're doing they're far more likely to put a brave face on things and drag themselves in than somebody in a I don't know I'm going to say a less important commercial world job you know where actually it's not the end of the world if I don't turn up today you know um so they're far more likely to have to do that aren't they I think that's such a well-made point because the thing that I do find working so I work a lot in the public sector and what you mm. discover is that people, they, they genuinely don't want to let people down. There's very, very few people get out of bed in the morning and think, I think I'll go to, to work and do a bad job today. Um, <laughs> I think I'll go to work and not care about customers. I mean, it just, mm. it just isn't something that people do. But they do go to work and find that they can't access the brain capability that enables them to be able to be cooperative with a customer or to be creative in dealing with a problem or to be able to make a decision quickly or to be able mm. to solve a problem that has presented itself to them. So, so those things, and those things are all related to our brain capability, which is something else we've been monitoring, which has been really interesting, the, the dip in brain capability that we've been noticing um, during COVID. There has been an improvement. We have seen some improvements, and I think as people get to know a little bit more about what is it going to be like post-COVID, you know, what, what does hybrid really look like? You know, what's it going to feel mm. like? Um, I think that, that is helping a little bit. But, um, but I think, you know, the, the, the issue around coming into work and, you know, coming in because you are actually committed. You're not coming in because you, 
you don't care, you're crying because you do care. The fact mm-hmm. that you can't function is a problem often of the environment as well as it may be bring, things you're bringing from home. But the emotional environment is very, very important and a fundamental factor in whether people are going to perform well, whether they're going to have brain capability that they can call upon or not. So we have a mm. big responsibility in organisations to create the right culture and environment. And that leads us into um, that the, really the topic of the, this afternoon's um, show, really. So, you know, what are the steps that we need to take? How do we navigate this epidemic of, of mental unhealth? What, what, what can we do as individuals and what can we as employers do? Mm. Where do our responsibilities lie? Well, I think the first most important thing has always got to be the data. Without mm-hmm. the data, you are in the dark. So you really need to get good quality data that can tell you what is going on in the organization, not only on the surface level, but also under the surface, behind the brave faces. So confidential data that people can trust because, you know, it's this, you can have so many um, surveys and people then can start saying, is that, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that that person that said that? And you don't want that. You want people to feel that like they can really be honest. The confidential yeah. data is, is really important, first and foremost. And then, and then what you do with it once you've got it. And I think it's, that's where a lot of organizations, they gather data and then say, we don't know what to do with the data now we've got it. Um, we yeah. obviously need a well-being strategy. And yeah. I think um, when it comes to looking at what our wellbeing strategy is going to be, it should be um, based on, first of all, identifying what you've got that works, because most of the people, I, the, the organisations I work with, um, they've got some great resources. But the biggest problem they have is that nobody's engaging in them. Mm. So, so this is what this is the point you made at the, at the beginning, isn't it? Mm. That if you're dra- there's no point chucking a life jacket to somebody who's drowned. Um, sorry, what am I talking about? There's every every point sending a life a life belt to somebody who's drowning. There's no point sending chucking them a book on how to learn to swim is the point you said, which is much exactly. more articulate exactly. than what my garbled response there. So <laughs> so you're right. That's the point you made that people who are in need of that support are the least able to yeah. access it. So how do, we, how do we help get over that problem? Well, I mean, that is, that is a difficult problem to get to, to overcome. I and mean, this is why I've been working in the technology that I've been working in, because that's what we mm. basically are doing. We're looking at how do you identify what level people are in terms of their well-being. And when we've identified it, we can then direct the right thing to the right person. So it's not, you know, like you say, um, if you've got a life jacket, then you know that the person that needs that is the person that is going under right now. But if you don't mm. know if they're going under because they're walking in going, hi, I'm fine, then it's mm. a problem. Um, another thing that I think is really important is, is having people who can um, talk to people in the organization and particularly who can um, kind of reach out to people and allow them to feel worthy of support. And the, the best way of doing that is to be vulnerable. I mean, I don't think you need a whole load of people going out saying, I'm specially trained in finding out whether you're okay or not. What you actually need is people going out saying, I don't always feel okay. Mm. And that's okay. And it's okay not to be okay. And I'm going to share that with you. And if you're not feeling okay, that's okay too. 
we need to get beyond cultures where we feel like we have to, you know, everything's about surface and um, everything's mm. about looking good and, and being tough and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it doesn't, it yeah. doesn't support anything. We, we need to work towards what I call Phoenix culture. Um, a Phoenix culture is where we're constantly reinventing it because every time something goes wrong, we go, oh, how can we learn from that? Rather than pointing the finger at somebody or saying, I don't know who did that, it's nothing to do with me. So, yes. so those are the things that will make a difference. Um, okay. and, I, and the key thing really is in identifying who do we need to get the right resource to. So if, if I've got people that are feeling reactive and they've dropped out of high levels of well-being, I can get them back into high levels of well-being quickly if I get them involved with other people. If I, if I get them to get, let's all have a coffee together and have a chat. I mean, simple things like that can move somebody out of a lower level of well-being, which could go bad, back up onto the bridge, as I like to call it. Mm. Quite a different mm. thing. Everyone can do that. This is this is very interesting what you're saying here, because I was going to ask you, uh, you know, on the one hand, there may be an there may be organizations listening where they've sort of invested in um, uh, well-being champions or mental health champions. And 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 there's kind of that approach on the one hand. And then on the other, uh, the other side, you could you could say, well, actually, this is something that an individual's line manager should be skilled or trained or coached to identify and spot know when they need to have that coffee I mean whose responsibility is it is there a is one model better than the other or is it is it actually a a mixture of those I think you know I think it's great anything that is supporting well-being and mental health in the workplace has got to be a good thing Use well, use properly, use judiciously. You know, it's got to be a good thing. Mm. I think that we should, all of us, take responsibility in teams to be supporting each other. And I think, you know, this idea that we have to be specially trained, it does help to learn and know how to have a, a good, supportive conversation with someone. And I think that's more important, much more important than knowing anything about any mental health condition. You don't need clinicians do that not us in the mm. workplace that's not our job but what we do need to be able to do is have decent conversations with people where we ask how are you how are mm. you today and mm. we can actually allow people to answer um, mm. so i think mm. that's that's the key and for me the more we can get teams to be self-empowering that is where i feel the real the real sort of nugget of gold is because Bringing things in from the outside um, is great. And if we want to be self-sustaining, we need to be individually and as teams more self-reliant. And I think teams can help each other. And it's, if when we're working in a team, we usually love the people we work with. And we're more likely to talk to them, to, to share with them, and to listen to them then we might somebody from outside the organisation. We're, we're more likely to trust them when they say, oh, I, I did this, or I, I felt that, and I, mm. I tried this. You know, we're more likely to. You know, teams at work are little communities, and they're really important, not just for being productive and getting the job done, but they're part of our, our sort of the extended family, and I think that's a really important thing. 
for me, the technology, which I've been involved in all my life, so I, I love technology, but the, but the real truth of it is, it's there to connect, from my perspective anyway, it's there to connect mm. one human to another. That's what it's mm. really there to do, to make sure we're connecting with each other, to give us a route to connect in a safe way. Um, it's never going to uh, take the place of another human being. And to be able mm. to have a conversation with somebody face-to-face, eyeball to eyeball, preferably, actually changes our body chemistry and takes us from being in dangerous states of stress into actually activated positive levels of energized. And Okay. So, so that's, that's, that's really interesting. So, so that, yes, I mean, technology not only connects, but I, I, I also think it, it frees us up to have the time to be more human because technology can take away, you know, more broadly, I don't mean yeah. in the health and wellbeing context, but just mm-hmm. more broadly, it can free us up from some of the grunt work, then more time with the human interaction, which is obviously important. So, but you made the point about face-to-face or real, um, looking people in the eye. Does that, that makes me think about whether when, when people are on virtual calls, um, Teams meetings, Zoom meetings and so on, do you have any sense as to the impact of having a camera on or off? You know, is it, is it, are we better when we see each other, even if it's through a screen? Yes, I would say very simple answer, which is yes. It mm. is, I mean, people don't always feel comfortable about having their, um, their camera on. I understand that. And very often it's because they're not feeling at their best. If you're in a group, mm you might not want to have your camera on. I can understand it. And when you do have a contact, whether it's face-to-face in a, in a coffee shop across the table and you're chatting um, or in the staff canteen, or whether it's across the screen and you're having a face-to-face, it does change your body and brain chemistry and it does make you healthier just having that conversation. So there are pros and cons to being online but I think the pros outweigh the cons in as much as it's better to be online and have a one-to-one, face-to-face, online with somebody than not to have a face-to-face at all or to have, have a conversation on the phone. It actually has um, more benefit to you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now that, that absolutely, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. So we've got, we've got just um, about four minutes left, um, Maria. I wonder whether we can finish up by, by really talking from a, organizational perspective for those people listening who are feeling that they they should be doing more about their people's well-being they know they perhaps got a sense that things are not as good as they could be what Mm. what steps ought they to be thinking about taking most immediately right well as i say i'm going to go back to data you've got to get the data so that's the first thing on your list get the data right the Mm -hmm. other thing is um and, and do a review of everything you've got. Don't think that you have to reinvent everything that you've done last year. Um, everything you've got is probably really good. What you need to be doing is looking at not one size doesn't fit all. So you're going okay. to have to be thinking about what kind of well-being level is going to be um, best suited to this particular resource or conversely, um, what do we need? to support people at different levels of well-being. And if you think in terms of whether they're slipped off the bridge and finding life difficult and maybe need group work, whether they're going under and need some kind of coaching or support or whether they're up to their next or if they're going under and you need to be able to dive in and pull them out. 
So think in terms of what resources you've got and how do you cover each of those different eventualities. And most importantly, what about the healthy people? How do you make sure you keep them healthy? So think about different things, so different strokes for different folks, if you like, but also mm -hmm. let's make sure that people keep their bridges maintained so that they're not falling off the bridge. Um, yeah. I think we can often be so um, kind of focused on the people that aren't in work. We forget that the people that are in work and have been in work are the ones that we also have to really look after. Um, so that would be that would be my main kind of thing. Get your data, check out what you already have, and then try to make sure that everything you've already got is being directed to the right people at the right time in the right way. Um, right. And I think I don't know if there's anything else that I can say on that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, you know, it is listen, isn't it? Listen, um, listen by whatever means. You know, whether that's getting the data through formal surveys and feedbacks or simply finding developing forums to to actually get in amongst people and hear what they're saying yeah a hundred percent i mean listening is the answer all round really and human mm. connection i suppose is is the thing i would say if you're a leader go out and talk to all of your team it's not a waste of your time. We can get so busy, we forget that actually that's probably the most important thing we can do. Yeah, in, in so many ways and for so many reasons, but particularly uh, when it comes to making the you know, maximising the well-being of your people. So that's great. Lovely. We have come to the end of our time, I'm afraid, Maria. So thank you very much um, to uh, Maria Pavoir, founder of CARI, uh, and uh, new chem coaching model and uh, thank you for listening to engage with success radio and don't forget you can download or stream any of the great shows from our archive at any time all you have to do is visit engagewithsuccess.org and if you want to get involved in the movement do get in touch at engagewithsuccess.org so thank you very much and goodbye engage for success radio raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.